Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Welcome to Tent Talks with Stephen Backhouse. My name is Bradley Jersak. I'm a friend of the show, a friend of Stephen, and I'm also the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick, Canada. And I am a core faculty member of the Institute for Religion, Peace, and Justice. And you can check us out at irpj.org if you'd consider coming to study with us, or at least finding out what we're about. So I've just released a new book called Out of the Embers, and the subtitle is Faith After the Great Deconstruction. In that book, I'm addressing this overly trendy word that causes me to twitch sometimes, but it is rather a movement right now. And I wanted to address it. And the way I did that was I want to come in with a different angle that says folks are having different and disorienting experiences and every story needs to be heard. So probably empathy is a much better way to come at this. One part of my book includes what I call seven sleepers who are the great deconstructionists in history. And one of those is Kierkegaard. And of course, that led me to check in with Stephen because he's my Kierkegaard expert. And one thing that he's also helping me do is is let you know about the book through having a series of four interviews with significant people and in very different worlds where I'm gonna ask them a series of questions that relate to deconstruction. week two, and we're going to ask David Hayward to be our guest this time. David Hayward is another dear friend of mine, but unlike last week's guest, Brian's on, uh, David is someone who's sort of an ex-church person, an ex-pastor. He's a really profound cartoonist and satirist. Uh, He goes by the moniker, The Naked Pastor. You can visit him online. Just uh, dial into The Naked Pastor as a website, or he's on, let's see, probably Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. And uh, David's walked a long journey of deconstruction. In fact, um, you might not know this, but yes, there were past uses of deconstruction as a term, let's say, in the 1960s with uh, Jacques Derrida, the philosopher. But who made it popular in this era? Well, that goes back to a tweet that David Hayward sent out over a decade ago. And really, uh, we can attribute the modern use, or we could say post-modern use, of the word deconstruction to him. It finds its roots in one of his cartoons. And so I said he's sort of ex-church, sort of an ex-pastor. I think he's in denial um, because he runs something called the Lasting Supper online. And it really is a community of people who've come out of the church and who interrelate there around faith and loss of faith. And I would question whether his leadership of that is not actually pastoring somehow. And maybe maybe they count as a form of church, although he can be very hard on the institution and for some good reasons, as we'll find out. So I hope you enjoy my talk with my dear brother and friend, David Hayward.
the nakedness is about a real vulnerability that he that he carries. And I will say this, my oldest son said he's the only pastor I trust. And that's meant a lot to me through the years. Wow. And uh, and you've pastored him, but he's not even part of, you know, your your open, uh, your, your what's it called? Lasting, uh, the, lasting the Lasting Supper, which is your yeah. kind of a, a community that you've put together. But even just, even just through your, you know, your cartooning, mm. um, uh, you've pastored a lot of people. And also a brilliant artist. What is the website where people can find your art? Well, thanks, Brad, for having me on, on your show. And hello, everyone. I'm glad, really glad to be here. Um, so nakedpastor.com is sort of uh, base camp. That's where everything's hubs around that I'm doing. I, I've got my hands on a lot of things, and uh, but that's basically where everything sort of collects. And so you can find me on all social channels, you know, everything from Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, you know, everywhere. And then um, I have thelastingsupper.com, which is my kind of my small group. And then um, my books and everything else. But everything can be found from uh, nakedpastor.com. Thank you. Um, now, one of the reasons why I asked you to do this interview is because your relationship with deconstruction. And I know that word means different things to different people. And even for me, it's a complex word that's got mm -hmm. layers. I think that's true of you as well. Mm -hmm. um, but also, if I do my etymology in terms of word usage, I would say, um, I don't know how deconstruction would have been used as lingo prior to Jacques Derrida, the philosopher in the 60s. Um, Mm -hmm. But in addition to him, it, it began to take on this new sense. And I think you're the roots of that. I think you coined that in terms of, of the, the current wave of deconstruction goes back to, mm -hmm. to probably you on Twitter or something like that. Does that sound right? Well, actually, it started on my blog, uh, I blog. think 2006 or something crazy or 2008. Yeah, a long time ago. Okay. <laughs> well, that so that'll lead to my first question. I'll just lay it out for you and you can answer how you like. But the way I've said it is this, that, um, deconstruction popularly used today, <laughs> thanks yeah. in great part to you, has become a catchphrase for quite a range of experiences from voluntary yeah. to involuntary, liberating to traumatic, personal to social, dismantling, restructuring, reframing belief systems. And so what I love about your work is, you know, you you graciously uh, allowed us to use uh, the cartoon you did of, of a shark. And what I noticed about about that cartoon uh, that people could see it in my book or on your on your site is is that we were fishing for truth. And so sometimes when we're fishing to truth, we we snag onto something that can be life changing as catching a shark. Can you just can you share what was going on with with that imagery and anything else you want to say about other words or metaphors to describe the phenomenon? Yeah, sure. So the uh, I, I just did a video today actually on TikTok where uh, it was like seven seconds long, and I said, for me, in my opinion, what really begins deconstruction is intellectual honesty, and basically. Um, that that's my own observations about my own life, but the observations of other people's lives that I've seen, it's just basically starting to ask questions 
and um, having the courage to ask the question, whether you do it in your closet or in darkness or behind closed doors or whatever in secret. Um, we, we all know asking questions, you know, say in the church or in any other kind of an institution that's well established and has rules and boundaries and, you know, values and all that asking questions can be very disruptive and often are welcome. So that for me is basically what deconstruction is, is questioning the established ideology. Um, and it can start for something as simple as, let's say for me, when I was a child, I remember being uh, walking through the Grand Canyon and somebody saying those, those layers that you see prove that there was a flood. Um, and so talking about the flood of, in the Old Testament and uh, my, one of my first thought was, I don't know. <laughs> Is that really true? And then that was just, that was just a very simple, private, secret question. And, you know, maybe very insignificant to some people, maybe silly to some people. Um, but for me, so in that cartoon, I show a guy in a little rowboat and he's fishing and he's got a little hook and on it is the bait, which is a question mark. But a huge shark is about to take that bait. And, and so that's what it was like for me was this, just that tiny little question led to eventually questioning everything. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't want to analyze, overanalyze it to death, but I have to say that it's a really profound image for me because it, it, it's not that he catches a lie. It's, it's that he's caught a truth, mm -hmm. but also mm -hmm. that truth can be devastating in terms of right. your, how you live. Um, so mm -hmm. there's pitfalls and breakthroughs to it. Yeah, like um, deconstruction is messy. It's chaotic, in my in my opinion, my experience, my observation. For me, when you when you start to question things, so deconstruction, like the house I live in, I bought it um, very cheaply many years ago. It was a cottage on a river, all chopped up into little rooms, no insulation, you know, just really run down, um, old carpet, blah blah blah. But I could picture a really nice home with all the walls removed and everything. And so I, you know, what was a very simple image in my mind that only took a second to create ended up taking months and thousands and thousands of dollars <laughs> and an incredible disruption to our life to, to deconstruct what was there. Yeah. And, and, and to tear it down, demolish and, and, you know, get down to the, what we felt was a, a reasonable foundation upon which we could build. So that 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 to me is the same with religion, faith, theology. But like you like you implied earlier, we're seeing it employed in all kinds of arenas. I saw an article the other day in just a regular newspaper or a magazine where it said deconstructing your friendships, kind of thing, and where it's being applied to everything, every sphere of life. And I think that's a reasonable project to, to question ideologies that have been built up and established over the years um, and question them right to the roots. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what really what I did mean by, um, huh. you know, what, the, what are their metaphors? So you've talked about demolition, you've talked about renovation, really. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you pull back a, a piece of 
what we call gyprock in Canada, and and suddenly you may also find like termites. You don't know what's what you're. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. But but there's an end game to that, and that is yeah. creating space, new space. Um, well, that's now, that's why I like that analogy. I have another analogy that I like as well. Please tell me, gar- which is gardening. Go but ahead. the reason I like the deconstruction one is because people are like, well, you got to reconstruct. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Um, we took walls out and like we removed walls. We created an open space, not so that we could build new walls, but because we like the space and, and open space. And so that's what I invite people to do is wait, don't um, jump into uh, rebuilding a theology, which I can guarantee you're going to only have to deconstruct later yep. or jump into another religion or another philosophy or ideology or practice or whatever, like just enjoy the space for a while, see what happens. But the other analogy that I really like to use is gardening, which I've, I've done where you've got a piece of earth. Maybe there, maybe there's bushes on it, trees on it. You, it takes a lot of work to clear away those trees, the stumps, the rocks, uh, the weeds, and then you've got to till the soil. You got to break it up. Um, you got to introduce some, maybe some nutrients. But basically, you just remove obstacles to growth. And once you once you plant a seed, uh, you just sort of stand back and and watch. Of course, you got to continue removing obstacles like weeds and pests and you know whatever else might come along that interrupts the growth process. So for me, de- deconstruction is basically clearing clearing the land and allowing you to have the space to just grow. I never once went out and pulled on the plant to make it grow faster or to pull on the tomatoes to make them grow faster or bigger. You just you just leave them alone, but provide the space for them to grow and guarantee you they will. So, so that for me is what deconstruction is kind of like. It's clearing away stuff, you know, adding some nutrients here and there, um, but basically getting out of the way and letting things happen. Yeah, that's like that's super compelling. Unless less your listeners think you're only talking about externals. I mean, we're also talking about that's a process that happens inside of you. Is that oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We hear other people talking about it uh, in like Zen and Buddhism Mm. and Eckhart Tolle and others where you're clearing your mind of all the clutter. Uh, Marie Kondo. Yeah. Egoism that gets in your own way. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Very good. So um, that's a good segue to my next question. That is like you've seen in my book where I, I'm looking at some of the voices that have been guides for me from Moses, Plato, the Cappadocians, Voltaire, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, Kierkegaard, Simon Weil. Um, do, do you have some names that come to mind that have been helpful? And you, you already may have mentioned some there, but wh- who, who've been your most trustworthy guides as you've navigated the the even the perilous parts of questioning the status quo well uh for me um going way back what what began my deconstruction what what launched it it was it happened on my graduation day from seminary and i was i had 
I graduated cum laude with a, a master's in New Testament studies under Dr. Gordon Fee uh, at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And so all that to say, I was I was swimming in the deep end of New Testament um, biblical scholarship. You know, when I was on my way, I eventually started my PhD program at University of Toronto in New Testament studies, you know, with all the Greek, all the Hebrew, everything. So I'm just telling you all that as sort of a backdrop that I love the Bible. I was in the deep end. I was totally committed, devout, all the way, 100% in. But I, I read a book um, on uh, as I was getting ready for graduation. I have free time, and I found a book in Harvard bookstore, and and uh, you know ended up reading it, and it totally destroyed or, or caused me to question my belief in the three E's or three I's of Scripture: infallible, inspired, and inerrant. And I, I suddenly questioned all that. And it wasn't like I came to any conclusion. It was just enough. It was like that small question mark was inserted, kind of like bad computer code, yeah, a virus that was inserted into my theological brain and just started to do its work. So that started, you know, way back when I was a young man, like 25 or something years old when I was graduating with my master's. And it just was a slow sort of a, a glacial melt. So that book was the beginning. And, and that's written. It's an obscure book. You know, it's I, I don't think it's famous by any means, but it was for me. It's James. And I know if I don't mention it, your people are going to ask. What it yeah, was. I need to know. <laughs> it's James Breach. Um, he was a New Testament scholar, professor at York University in Toronto. And the book was called The Silence of Jesus. And basically what he did was he took the, the, the I forget what the, was it funk? That panel that decided what was authentic in the sayings of Jesus and what was not authentic. Right. And they would blackball or gray yeah, ball. The Jesus ball. Seminar. Yeah. The Jesus Seminar. That's it. And um, he took that uh, and they concluded there were seven sayings that were most likely um, authentic and the rest were you know, imputed into the mouth of Jesus. And so he took those seven saints and then applied a Nietzschean critique to them, hermeneutic, and uh, sort of unwrapped these. And and it, it was just like, telling you, Brad, it was, it blew me away. I was so shook. I was so traumatized that my wife actually had to grab onto my shoulders and say, you got to go to graduation ceremony. <laughs> and and um, it was devastating, but that's where it all began. So that's the book where it all began. But then later on, um, when I was like in ministry and all this kind of a thing, I got introduced to Henry Nowen. Yes. And um, who, and the, the first book of his I read was on Thomas Merton. And so I got into Thomas Merton, the mm. Trappist monk. Yeah, and read all of his stuff, gobbled it up. That introduced me to the whole um, journaling thing, and so, and then that, you know, because Merton was familiar uh, and becoming even more familiar with Eastern philosophy, and and so on. In fact, he died at a Buddhist conference, I believe. That introduced me to Eastern thought, which introduced me to Krishnamurti, and one of Krishnamurti's books, uh, "The Urgency of Change." Uh, has been instrumental. Uh, that's one of the, my top 10 books. It's just a little, almost like an extended pam pamphlet. And then, you know, so from there, it was just that constant unfolding of uh, what I call universal thinking or broader thinking. 
And and so <clears throat> while on, on the one hand, I felt my foundation was in Christian theology, it was being mm, amplified and unwrapped and shed light on from diff all different kinds of angles, including Eastern thought and science and, and so on. So, and then this, to, to conclude this, this long answer to a short question, this led me to, while discussing people with you, for example, Simone Weil, um, your book, uh, Awaiting God, that would be another installment. Her, her final letter to the priest, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's deconstruction 101 right there. Like that's yeah. just read that. <laughs> yeah. And she even talks, she loves to talk about decreation, right? I mean, she's really yeah, yeah, yeah. going yeah. after it. She's ruthless. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful woman. And then and then, you know, her her whole thing about intellectual honesty and and science and psychology and history and and um, other religions and so on. Um, and then I would also include like quantum physics, like David Bohm and uh, Carlo Rovelli and, and things, Albert Einstein, et cetera, et cetera, who have this um, obsession with the uh, a unifying theory of all things. And uh, which I, I seem to have that bug in me too, that I believe there must be one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. that all that is all those books and and people have sort of informed and helped to inform where, where I am at. That's exactly the answer I was looking for. <laughs> Thank you. <All> one. <laughs> yeah. So now I want to shift now. I've been thinking in a sense that's past and and things leading up to where you're at in in your journey, but also where the world at large is into the present. So um, I'll lay out this question again, and then you can riff off it in the same kind of way. So what I'm asking is in the communities that you represent and serve, the Lasting Supper, but also beyond to your clientele and to your network of, of friends and, and fans, there is, I think it's fair to say that there are significant crises at foot at this moment in time. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what you see as presenting most intensely right at the moment and how, how we could address those challenges. I think the number one issue that's concerning me is one of the things I noticed when I started talking about deconstruction, and I kind of made it a thing in 2012 when I just start, decided to launch an online community called The Lasting Supper <clears throat> to allow people to have a safe place where they could deconstruct and question and vent and everything without being corrected or you know, um, steered in any direction or whatever, that they could be just their authentic selves in a safe space. And um, what the, one of the number one responses that I would get from people was that, you mean I'm not crazy? You mean this, this, this is normal? Like, I'm not the only one? And, and it was quite liberating because when I started deconstructing, it was a very private ordeal. Had to be. <laughs> and yeah, it had yeah. to be. Yeah. It had to be very well. I was in the ministry too. So there are, you know, it, it's really hard um, sometimes to navigate those between those two, uh, you know, rocks, let's say. So what I think is happening right now is on the one hand, you have people who are doing something that's very normal and has always occurred. 
where people question their beliefs and, and so on. Simone Weil talks about this, about group thought. And when you, you're not allowed to question in group thought, because if you do, you're going to be punished or ex, excommunicated or, or whatever. And, yeah. and that's always been the case. That's not a new thing. This has always been the case. And, and so I think deconstruction is something that's been going on for a long, long for centuries, forever, as yeah. long as there's humans around. And, um, but we've, up to now, the, the choices always were to hide it or to come out and get excommunicated or whatever. Or now people are like, ah, go ahead, excommunicate me. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> because they just the whole view of the church and everything has gone through a huge transformation. And, and so uh, what, I, what I see as a huge danger right now is that um, a lot of church leaders, I'm seeing them try, trying to denormalize it. <laughs> They're trying to make this like a weird kind of a last days apocalyptic exit from the, from the church, uh, that there's mass hysteria and deception going on. And um, they're they're kind of making it a you know an evil, sinful, sexual, you know you name it kind of a, a thing. So that they're trying to make people feel like oh after all this is not good you know me asking questions. So I think that's the biggest danger right now facing facing the church and 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 its members and ex members people who are deconstructing is on the one hand. People feel very liberated when they discover this is normal. And then um, on the other hand, they feel very controlled, overpowered, judged, shamed, and everything when they're told this isn't normal. And in fact, it's unhealthy. Well, let, let me bring a, a sub question to that one. Mm. So my experience of, of deconstruction and my observations of it is that it, it can include a necessary kind of detachment. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes it's imposed if you're just kicked out. And right. then and then that can descend into a painful um, sense of alienation mm-hmm. uh, and and even purposeful exclusion, like even from one's own family sometimes or their community of origin. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm asking you this because you've already forged the way on it too, but l- where do we begin to find a renewed sense of belonging or healthy attachment or trusted community so that we don't all just become yeah isolated that's a huge and important question um and i i have my answer uh i think we need to change what the value is that we desire in community okay and what what brought this to light for me was after i left the ministry in 2010 Lisa and I, my wife and I had already been deconstructing for many, many, many years. Like I said, a slow glacial melt uh, culminated in us uh, leaving the ministry and the church in 2010. This uh, sort of launched us on a sort of a very traumatic season in our marriage. When we, up to that point, what we kind of assumed, well, we didn't really even think about it. We were just sort of joined at the hip and everything. Uh, we met in a Bible college, uh, you know, when we were, she was 18, I was 21, super, super young. We got married the next year. She was 19, I was 22. Um, and, you know, we just sort of grew up together 
in our beliefs and our faith. So it, it was never thought about or talked about or whatever. It was just all assumed. But then eventually um, it got to the point where it's like, well, do you pray anymore? Or how do we, how do you pray? You know, these sort of uh, important questions. Mm-hmm. And um, we realized after we left the ministry, uh, I, our marriage was kind of in trouble because we didn't know how to relate anymore. Uh, we were no longer in the church, surrounded by a support group, surrounded by friends, su- surrounded by and and bolstered and uplifted by a, a call, a vision, a mission, a destiny, friendship, support. You know, all this stuff was gone. Our kids had left home. Empty nest was happening. She went to university to get her nursing degree. I was teaching in a, in a university uh, for a while. And so it was like our lives was like a grenade went off in the middle of it and just blew everything apart. And we didn't know how to stay married. Like the, the glue felt gone. Yeah. Cause we were no longer in church with our friend shared assumptions, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and ended up going for counseling and coaching and, you know, all this kind of thing. And we had to sort of renegotiate how to be in relationship how to be married. And we realized, you know, it's, it's not compatibility of belief that, that holds us together. It's, it's love, which means mutual respect and appreciation and awe and wonder and grace and curiosity and, and unity and diversity, right? That kind of a, kind of a thing that we discovered that that's a microcosm of what I think how the world should be, you know, yes. how communities ought to be. So yes. if a church's value is uh, when you sign up, you, you need to believe all the same things. This is what makes us one. I think that's an illusion. The first, the first question you ask blows it up, right? It's like a threat. It threatens that. Yeah, that's right. Right. And, yeah. Okay. And so that's one of the thrilling and exciting things about my online community, The Lasting Supper, is our value isn't you need to let go of these beliefs. You need to adopt these ones. I'll be your guide. Instead, it's you figure out how to be spiritual. <laughs> you figure out what you believe. You know, we trust you to drive your own car and we're here for you in whatever way you need us. Um, but we're not here to preach or correct or uh, discipline or rebuke or reject or whatever, whoever you want. So as a result, the Lasting Supper is a vast diversity of anything, anyone from atheists to church-going believers and everything in between. Because our value isn't, you got to believe the same thing. The value is, I respect you and whatever journey you're on. Of course, we get into differences and things like that but that's another issue those are things that need to be worked out anyway so for me i think that's what the the challenge is for the church and for community and and for relationships and our families and so on is yeah there's that danger of alienation it's usually because you're not on the same page as we are we need to let that go we need to figure out how to, oh, you're not on the same page? Well, are you in the same book? Well, are you at least in the same library? <laughs> you know, you know, trying to figure out a way to enlarge our view of what it means to be in relationship. But there's the value, being in relationship. That's yeah. really good. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, if you have that, then it's belonging instead of isolation and alienation, but not contingent on checking off the... 
well, identical boxes. The other day, I, I did a little video on uh, deconstructing in front of your kids. And I was very open about that. We have three children. They're all adults now. They're all on their very own unique spiritual journeys, very different from ours. But we're, we have a great relationship with our kids. We're like good friends. We love hanging out. We love each other. We respect each other and so on, even though we're on very different paths. Because we decided very early on, I remember Lisa saying, listen, I want to stay in relationship with him. I don't want to always be right. I would rather be in relationship than always be right. You know, that's not something you can write down in a rule book. That's something that has to be negotiated every step of the way, which okay. is, that's real anyway. Yep. And as a result, we allowed our kids to discover their own selves and how to be their authentic selves and to believe their own thoughts and to decide how to be spiritual and so on. That that's how we've stayed in relationship. We we love and respect them. Their journeys are very unique, and we appreciate that, even though they're different. And and so that's why I think it 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 works. Like we want what works. I I think I think yeah. we want what works for yeah. community and relationship. And um, as long as we, as as Bonhoeffer was so wise to point out, as long as we impose some kind of visionary thinking on a community or a church or any relationship, it destroys it. It destroys what actually is. Well, I want to, I want to move on now then to the future. Um, so based on your observations and intuitions, I'm wondering what you might be able to foresee or suspect mm -hmm. um, as, in terms of preparing for the coming decades. In other words, like what's being baked into our future right now? Mm -hmm. And and can we even foresee enough to have uh, a healthy response ready instead of a knee-jerk reaction? Or or maybe that's a wrong-headed question. Maybe it's like, well, we, we're going to deal with today. <laughs> are, do you have anticipations about where we're heading? I'm curious who the we is. Yeah. Um, who, who's the we? Is it the church or is it uh, theologians or is it um, people who are concerned about deconstruction or interested in it? I, um, I, th I think I could let you decide who we are. Okay. Um, you and I. <laughs> um, I think the church needs to... And this is something I tried to practice as I, as I was a pastor of, you know, local congregations, churches for about 30 years. And that is, it's like a child goes through childhood and then, you know, the, the tweenies and, and so on, preteens, and then the teen years, adolescence, young adulthood, adult, adulthood. There's that period of time when, when your children start to question your authority your relevance, uh, the teacher's authority, um, the police authority, you know, they start to question all these things and maybe even challenge it, maybe even reject it. Um, and, and you do your best to be the best parent that you can be. Um, but you, you understand, Hey, I remember going through that stage, uh, and I'm just going to be there for, for them and try to provide, you know, some kind of guidance, some kind of advice if they want it refer, you know, uh, et, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and eventually, even though your kids might go through a time where they're like, I don't want anything to do with you, or, you know, I'm uncomfortable around you or whatever, eventually, 
if your door is always open and you're not judgmental or shaming or, you know, critical and all that kind of thing, they'll come back. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think the church needs to adopt a broader, or a longer view of growth. The church is great of taking people through stages one, two, and three of, say, James Fowler's stages of faith. Yeah. But as soon as uh, they, they come into awareness and they start questioning the establishment and authority and teaching and so on, you've got a choice. Either you shut up or, or you leave. Uh, and and, and that, that's unfortunate. I think if the church was like, yeah, this is totally natural in personal spiritual growth and in community spiritual growth. And we're going to we're going to just provide space for this to happen. And um, with the knowledge that when when it's done in a healthy manner, I think I think if the church would do this, they would see people coming back if they provide space or never leaving even. So, oh, yeah, the The prodigal son story, right? Yeah. If it's the church, that's what I'm saying is that it needs to expand its, you know, growth model uh, beyond adolescence or young adulthood. So. For the rest of us, for us normal people out here talking about deconstruction and so on. um, Society. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just, uh, you know, seeing that this is a a natural process in in personal growth. Um, Like, so we're seeing um, articles now and people posting about deconstructing this, deconstructing that, de- and and um, deconstructing pronouns, deconstructing gender, deconstructing <clears throat> race, deconstructing, you know, everything. And a lot of people are like, oh, for God's sake, can we shut up about all this? Like, why is everything, why do we have to change anything? Well, we have to change everything because this is how we show compassion to our neighbors is we learn how to be more global in our thinking. Our hearts get bigger, our minds get bigger and more open. This is what it means to grow instead of, you know, nailing down um, our words and our thoughts to never change, you know? So I I think we're being invited into a more compassionate way of thinking and speaking and, and living. That's a, that's a beautiful principle. It's interesting. You're stimulating thoughts in me about that, in even in terms of of uh, the culture wars, for example, where those those who break rank with us and who end up somewhere on the far left or the far right or the far, you know whatever far means from the establishment that we've been part of, mm-hmm. and to have a longer view of that too, and say, um, can can I be empathetic to the things that cause their panic that create these reactions? Um, maybe I can't even understand it, but can I be compassionate enough to keep a door open for it if they do come around or if I come around <laughs> to to see yeah, yeah. more clearly? So yeah, I, I remember reading uh, this was when um, you know um, Trump had come to power and COVID and everything, and um, I read an article and it was in something like the New Yorker or the Atlantic or some esteemed magazine talking about what do you do if somebody goes down the conspiracy trail like what yeah. do you do if a loved one does that and and their basic advice was you got to take the long view you're not going to change their mind overnight you're not it, it's like you gotta stay if you love them enough you got to stay in relationship with them and take the long view being that safe space where they can come back to 
So it's it's the same. You're basically saying the same thing. It's it's taking the long view, but that's just being compassionate anyway. Yeah, uh, I remember reading. Um, was it Thich Nhat Hanh or somebody who talked about compassionate speech? And compassionate speech is where you you speak in such a way that is inclusive. And we we run into the opposite of this all the time when somebody starts talking to us as if we believe in the same God we do, they do. And we believe the same miracles in the same way we interpret the Bible the same way. And they believe they just assume that we think exactly the same way they do. And yeah. it kind of catches you off guard because you're thinking in the back of your mind, I don't believe that. Why are they speaking to me this way? They should know better that I don't mm. believe that anymore or that I don't believe that. But yet they're talking. That's not compassionate speech because you're you're forcing somebody into a way of responding that isn't the, from their authentic self. So compassionate speech is you speak in a way that is inclusive and uh, doesn't create an obstacle to that person. Well, just yeah. to wrap things up, I want to reiterate your very clear definition that you shared at the beginning. Deconstruction is questioning or beginning to question what? <laughs> How did you put it? Well, it was so good from your TikTok. The beginning of deconstruction is intellectual honesty. You know, okay. Yeah. Like, and, okay. I'll give you one. I'll give you yeah. one. One okay. of the big ones that happened for me. Now, I grew up in the Pentecostal church. Yeah. Uh, I was in a Baptist church where the pastor was very miracles and demons and everything. And, and then, long story short, I ended up in the Vineyard Church where there was a lot of talk about miracles and all this kind of thing. And one of the biggest realizations to me way down the road was I don't think I've ever seen a miracle. I mean, I've, you know, yeah, wonderful things happen. Like I get a check in the mail that I wasn't expecting or somebody gets prayer and they're said, oh, my head doesn't feel as sore as it did or whatever. But I, I was around circles that talked about growing limbs and, you know, the blind seeing and, uh, Raising from the dead, even I was, I was in those circles, Brad. Yeah, yeah. Those were my peers, and so for me, a huge development in my deconstruction was: I don't think I've ever really seen a miracle. That's what I mean by intellectual honesty. Yeah, yeah. Is because uh, up to that point, I might be, yeah, I've seen miracles, and and you know, whatever, because I've been in those kind of services and all this kind of thing. So that kind of intellectual honesty is what I'm talking about that can really overturn everything. Okay. Well, and my point behind that question is to just say oh, people should also get your book, um, Questions Are the Answer. I still think that that goes way back to the roots of this, giving people fundamental permission to embark on a, on a journey of intellectual honesty with themselves. Right and uncomfortable questions that emerge from that that actually will free you up. It's just such a good book, David, and, and I hope people look at it. Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to having others see this interview. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Brad. My pleasure. Well, welcome back. And we've just listened to the naked pastor, David Hayward, dear friend of mine from Eastern Canada. And I want to check in with you, Stephen, about that interview. Yeah. 
Wow, thanks for having um, me on. Uh, I guess it's kind of your, your, it's kind of my podcast, but it's kind of your podcast. This is. Good. I'm guest hosting your show, and I, so I guess I get to treat you as a guest host. <laughs> so there was a really neat thing that happened um, last week. You talked about an alternative way to think about deconstruction is is by being honest. And then yeah. on this week's episode, you know, David Hayward, he really answered that same question about. Uh, deconstruction for him is about when when you give yourself permission to ask questions and yeah. that's sort of a, it's on the same theme right very much is isn't it and, yeah and uh, and so when i'm allowed to be honest with myself first of all and then perhaps uh, i can be honest with god in the way that you see in in the lament psalms of you know, Psalm 6 and Psalm 13, where he, there's really the confidants of God are willing to have those hard, honest conversations um, and, and express honestly and authentic, authentically the things that like deeply trouble us. And, and um, well, that wasn't allowed in many of our traditions. And David Hayward kind of, he, he's challenged that. He wrote a really beautiful book I mentioned in, in the podcast called um, Questions Are the Answer. So, so I thought, what a good segue from last week, but also you and I spent a fair bit of time on Kierkegaard. We may do some more yet, but I'll, I'll, lay, out the, I'll lay out the second question. Um, so last week's question was on definitions and metaphors. This week's question, uh, it's about the past. So in my book. Because you ask the same four questions of everybody, don't you? So we're every time. Through. Yeah. We're going to go through one question every week between two of us. Okay. What's question thanks, number two? Thanks for explaining that because I, I, yeah, that helps. Um, so, in Out of the Embers, I appealed to some key voices from the past and, and I engaged their versions of deconstruction through the century. So, some of the ones in my book I did, like Moses, you know, taking yeah, down right. the golden calf, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Plato coming out of the cave of delusion. Uh, the Cappadocians, it's like getting rid of your 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 concepts of God to get into the actual God. Uh, Voltaire, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, Kierkegaard, of course, and Simone Weil. So in your personal experience, um, who have been your most trusted influences? And that could be historically or also recently. So kind of the guides in your life, maybe famous, maybe private, who've shaped your your journey and especially i'm thinking of the ways we internalize those voices and so these could be great great names or it could be some sunday school teacher you had at some point but who that's sort of the gist of the question that those and those who've formed you and shaped your thinking and you're welcome to repeat some stuff about kierkegaard there but others <laughs> as well <laughs> it's that it's that old thing about the Sunday school, the what's what's brown with a long bushy tail and likes to eat nuts. Well, it sounds like a squirrel, but the answer must be Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> For me, my Sunday school question is, well, it sounds like whatever, but it must be Kierkegaard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, okay, I want to find out yours as well. Brad, I don't know if this comes up in, in future uh, episodes at all, because I haven't heard all these interviews you've done, but uh, I want to find out who your people are. I mean, to be perfectly honest, you're one of my people, actually. It was The Christ-Like God. The More Christ-Like God was a, was a really good book that I discovered a few years ago. Um, I wasn't 
to me that those weren't like new ideas it's just that you put them all into one place in a really good way another one would be um uh tom wright's surprised by hope is another one where when i read that i was it wasn't like he'd introduced stuff i'd never thought of before it was just to see it all in play in one place at one yeah. time and laid out really well that those are two kind of that was important uh, another good book that i really like is a guy named fergus kerr he's written a book called theology after wittgenstein oh i haven't read that and uh so my tutor uh his name is timothy bradshaw so i don't know if timothy bradshaw will ever listen to any podcast ever i i doubt it highly doubt it but he was my tutor at university lovely guy and so the, the way university worked is that you'd have uh every week you'd have to write an essay right and i had i would have to write this essay every week and then you'd have to read it out loud to the tutor and then he would critique you and ask you questions and this kind of stuff oh wow and that was my education and uh one day timothy bradshaw who was my theology tutor he said and normally you're set like 10 books or and you have to kind of comb through them and then write your essay based on those 10 books and uh, he said you know instead of uh, the old 10 books and an essay I want you just to read this. And he just handed me this slim volume, Theology After Wittgenstein. It's not very big. And he said, just go away and read it. Don't even write an essay. We'll just talk about it when you come back. And wouldn't you know it, you know, that's the book that changed my life, right? Like that's the one. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't padding out the bibliography. It was just a simple invitation to have a conversation. And uh, so that would be a really good book to remind you of the bodily, I mean, basically it's reminding you of the sort of, bodily nature of the incarnation and it's also about the uh the reality of lived life and and how important other people are to to to, to an individual's identity um so that i'm gonna that, buy that that's good yeah i mean and and, and because it's the fergus kerr is specifically writing as a theologian for theologians it was quite that was quite good so yeah i mean there, there's some of those people i had a, another tutor uh her name is Jane Shaw. She was my tutor in church history. Uh, my first ever university tutor, actually. And I think, again, the first thing she ever sent me was an assignment on the, the Didache. Have you ever heard of the Didache? Oh, yes. The early yes. church history, right? And and she was like my tutor in early church history. And, it, and, and she introduced me to the martyrs, to the stories of the martyrs and stuff. And, and I just, I, she wasn't trying to deconstruct. She wasn't deconstructing me she wasn't doing anything like that she just was introducing me to stuff that was bigger and deeper than the to be honest very shallow evangelical christianity that i'd come to university with and she she wasn't trying to break it down or destroy me she just said oh you should probably be aware of where christianity came from <laughs> that's really that's neat because you're bringing in metaphors again without even thinking about it bigger and deeper Right, so there's the the metaphor of outgrowing the the, the limitations of my, your previous structures, and you had to see bigger than that. But you also had to then you use shallow versus deep, right? And so you're you're fathoming uh, uh, new depths, and and that's really that's about exploration. It's about discovery. It's about the wonder that when you find out the world and God and the cosmos, everything's bigger than you thought it was deeper than you. Yeah. How refreshing. What about you, Brad? What are some of your, who are some of your people? Well, of course, I, I mean, I really go into a few of them heavily in the book, especially Dostoevsky and, and Simone Weil. And for her, for me, she was, she was just absolutely crucial in terms of coming to grips with um, letting go of, of, 
my ways of rationalizing the problem of pain and that we shouldn't even try to do that in, in that God doesn't do that. What God does is hangs on a cross, you know, and this is his response. And um, so somehow when I ran into her, I was in a very, very dark place. And, and, uh, and the way she said, you know, look at the cross and be astonished by the goodness and be astonished by the affliction and be astonished that they intersect in this one man. I mean, it was just really powerful to me. But um, and then in my personal life, the one who put me on to her was a, a fellow named Ron Dart. And he actually was has been a mentor for, oh, man, uh, for for 20 years now. And he would he ran in. He was he's a local university prof. And he ran into me when I was spiritually, emotionally, physically really thinning out and. And he's like, you, you need to get some balance in your life. So he started taking me on mountain hikes. And it started with three-hour hikes on groomed trails. And within a few years, we were doing like mountain climbing together, like way beyond what I wanted to. And, and I couldn't maintain it. But while he would do these hikes with me, he would, he would teach me Plato. He would teach me the Beatitudes. We would talk about the Sermon on the Mount, and we he kept a pace that where it, it became very, very pedagogical and and what do you call that uh, when you the walking kind of teaching. But uh, and then ultimately, um, when I went for my PhD at Bangor University in Wales, uh, they subcontracted half the supervision to him. So it felt a lot like like you know being having you know, Moses being nursed for pay by his own mother. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, so I've had quite, I've had a number of people like that in my life, but he, he you know, even when we were doing the, my dissertation, we would meet every three weeks and half of those meetings were to talk about the dissertation. And the other half, he was working me over with, from a kind of a Thomas Merton perspective on true self false self and what is the what are the what are not just what are the cravings you have that disrupt your life but let's think about the craver and what drives the craver and he's so he was it was really quite a a, a deep level sort of therapy and last week i also mentioned a 12-step sponsor whose name is robin and again life-saving people who you know when i think about uh when I recognize the voice of self-loathing or self-pity or self-importance in me, it's because she helped me to recognize those voices. And instead of wallowing in them for three days, she gave me tools to see them when it's happening in the moment. So I can turn from it far more quickly. And that has a real day-to-day yeah. -day And those are me. both, both uh, Robin and the uh, Ron Dart examples. They're both kind of more like your inner self like you're deconstructing some of the i don't know strongholds or or uh, kind of that's hard exactly places, right right yep. in inside yep. they they weren't trying to break you out of bad systems no they're or, healers really yeah and it's still um, but, but and you think the word deconstruction or the, the moment of deconstruction still applies to this doesn't it to the in the sense of um, all of those self words are egoism yeah so it's right. the, the deconstruction of egoism I yeah. don't think we're meant to eradicate the ego. No. <laughs> but egoism where it's enthroned. Yeah, that yeah, needs yeah. to be dismantled and exposed yeah. and marginalized. Yeah. 
Uh, is that costly? Because we talked last week how being a prophet can be costly. What yeah. about being an inner? Can you can you be a prophet to yourself? I wouldn't want to do it by myself, but I would say that the fruit is so good because you're not just tearing down something; you're removing an obstacle to to uh, deeper levels of the experience of God's love and mercy. That's really what is happening there. So it's like Isaiah removing the stones off the highway so God can come in. You know? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question, Brad. That was fun. That is a good question. I think question. we've used all our time already. Ah, no, you've made me thankful now for some of these people that have been plonked into my life with I didn't even uh, didn't seek them out. They were this there. And yeah, what a you gift. You never know, eh? right? Yeah. You just God provides uh, that's a strange thing to say but these days. But I hope people listening can think about those who've touched them that way and maybe extend a word of gratitude and be yeah. watchful for the next one. Yeah. Send them an email. Send them a letter. Awesome. Nobody ever minds being told that they they made a good influence in somebody's life. Send them a copy of Theology After Wittgenstein. <laughs> <laughs> surely, surely it should be your book. Surely yeah, that's okay. Send them out. <laughs> well, we'll talk right, to you Brad. next week again, Stephen. See you next week. Bye. You bet. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com. Music